You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology Podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. We're recording in New Orleans today, as several of us have been attending the 2018 Society for Historical Archaeology meeting. We'll be talking about some of the sessions we've attended and what we've learned over the past three days. Joining me today are April Bisa and Jessica Irwin, both women who've been guests on the show before. Thank you so much for taking time out of your conference schedule um, to be on the podcast. And it's always really exciting when I get to see people in real life um, rather than just over a computer screen. So to start off with, do you guys want to talk about some of the great sessions that you've attended or what's been really awesome and you've been happy to participate in? Sure, I'll go first. Um... I, so, well, just in generally, you know, we're all kind of a little disenfranchised by what's happening politically in our country and what's happening to funding and positions. And I attended this amazing session that was hosted by two different lobbyists who um, brought to us, you know, the skills that you need to actually kind of approach your legislators. And they broke us out into small groups so that we could work with each other and kind of bounce different ideas off of one another about how to approach your legislator, what to say, but then they also gave us these really fantastic tips about the etiquette and how to walk through it and who to ask for help. And so that was really great. And also the name of the session was fantastic, which is if you're not on the table, you're on the menu, how to be an advocate for historical archaeology, which I kind of think that's how a lot of us are feeling right now. Yeah, that's a um, phenomenal title. It was it was really good. And also, it was one of the few sessions that I felt like kind of gave me hope for the future that, you know, not all is lost in the in terms of federal funding and recognition of science and cultural heritage and, you know, cultural resource preservation. So that was a really great session. Awesome. April, what about you? Uh, the first day was my busy day. I was a discussant in the post-industrial archaeology session. And as part of my discussion comments, I, I pulled out some of the uh, quotes from some of the presenters that I think summarize um, you know, what we were talking about in there, which included things like, archaeology and critical heritage will not solve the world's problems, but it is a contribution. And doing archaeology is actually a small part of doing archaeology. And it's not about nostalgia, it's about power and politics, um, but also that archaeology can be part of the legacy of structural racism when certain pasts are selected and therefore others are, are left out. Um, and then I presented on my research on contemporary Native American protests in a session on uh, contested narratives that started with a protest camp paper from a German anti-nuclear uh, protest camp and uh, he ended with an interesting quote that from the community that he works with that they said that they're not ready for their camp and them to be talked about and brought to a museum because they're still in the middle of this anti-nuclear protests, right? That that cause is not over. And uh, that goes back to something that I said in, in the post-industrial session that I'm a little um, worried about when we talk to people when we're doing contemporary archaeology and we tell them that we're doing archaeology, that to non-archaeologists, archaeology is about people who are dead and gone. And if you say I'm doing the archaeology of you, we're kind of labeling people as doomed and mm -hmm. their places as doomed. So that's one of the things that, that I've been thinking about um, and playing with there. And then we had uh, the tweet up after those two sessions um, on Thursday night. So that was my, my big day. And then I went to the SHA's uh, Structural Racism Forum, which was a, a discussion. There was also a workshop, an anti-racism workshop. I didn't go to that one. I went to the, the Structural Racism Forum, and it was great to see the diversity of people in the room, of different identities. Um, and it, it wasn't as productive as it could have been. Uh, it, it turned into more of an airing of grievances, but I think lots of people need to feel heard before mm -hmm. we could move on. 
So hopefully that will be something that happens at future conferences and then we could start moving towards uh, solutions to things. And uh, I was in another session where Michael Nassani was a discussant and he just said something that I wanted to, to mention. He said that, you know, um, He's an older archaeologist and you know, said that he's been around a long time and he said that at this conference for the first time he's heard the word collaboration more than he's heard the word archaeology. So I think that goes back to what one of the presenters said in a session I was a discussant for that uh, archaeology is actually a small part of doing archaeology, the actual digging, the actual artifacts thing, um, at least for some of us. So those were some of the highlights of my conference. That brings up a really interesting point because one of the things that really stood out to me in another session, which was the ACUA um, sponsored student session where they were talking about you know what different programs have to offer, was that you know for a long time there has been this whole like I go to this university so I do this, and you know there might be students at another university who are interested in that, but you're at that university so you can't come to my field school or you can't work in my lab and now there for the first time is a really high interest in saying yeah you know what like I'm gonna send some students to you who are interested in since 16th century shipwrecks meanwhile over here we're working on 18th century shipwrecks so you send some of your students over here and hey Texas A&M you have this amazing conservation lab and us up here at Rhode Island don't have access to those kind of resources. So, but we have this, you know, amazing deep sea research vessel. So, like, let's like let our students integrate and not be such kind of closed off clubs, which is really amazing because that's completely that's a that's a new thing. So, yeah, and it's not just at universities. I was actually um, attended the Friday night evening function um, last night, which was really interesting and had a conversation with someone that I'd never met before who was a friend of a friend and he was asking a lot of questions about well, when you're at a conference kind of how do you break out of the group that you've been put into I'm an underwater archaeologist I work in Latin America I work in New England I do gender studies and when you are at a conference and you're talking to people and that, you know, one of the first things you ask at a conference is well what do you research and you explain it to them, and you very often get, oh, well, have you met X? Or let me introduce you to Y. And they try and put you back into that group of people, into that box that they're kind of like, the people who study this belong in this box. And that that, if you don't know any of those people, that's really useful to, to know those people. But it's also really useful to have conversations with people who work with different theoretical frameworks with different methodology in different parts of the world because some of the best collaborations that you can have are with people coming from very, very different structural standpoints and different backgrounds because if the only people you ever talk to are the people who do the exact same thing as you do, you can end up in an echo chamber. And conferences are a place where you have people from all over the country, all over the world who study across you know, thousands of years and all over the world. And there's this incredible opportunity to talk to people who may force you to think outside of the framework that you're comfortable thinking in. And I don't think that people always take advantage of that at conferences. Um, and that it's just kind of like we need to do a better job, even at conferences, of just saying, you know, I study A, you study X. Most people would say that they seem to be worlds apart. Yeah, but Let's have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think for me, that was one of the great things about a few of the other meetups. So I had, you know, now I do underwater, but I had a terrestrial reunion for one of the sites that I worked at, which had people that now are doing, you know, we all started at the same place, but now we're all doing completely different things. So it gave a nice kind of unique opportunity to like talk to people that I definitely wouldn't have talked to before. And also to be in a setting where the introductions aren't happening because, oh, hey, like you do this and the other person does the same thing, like you guys should talk. The introductions are happening because like, hey, you did this in 2012, this person did it in 2013, and now you guys are both doing these two crazy different things. Like, you know, have chat. And so that was that. It needs to happen more. I think it's slowly starting is starting to. Um, 
but I feel like the, the vibe at this conference, ha- this is my eighth time coming to SHA, so I feel like it's, it's definitely different than it has been in the past. Yeah, and I think one of the great ways that you can accomplish that, April, you had mentioned the, the Twitter meetup that we had uh, Thursday evening, I think that was, and I've had, again, going back to conversations I've had with this individual as well as others of, I'm the only person from my university here. I don't know what's going on. I want to meet people. I want to go to the networking events, the happy hours. I want to develop relationships. But if I don't have someone here who's already keyed into that that network, how do you integrate yourself into it? And I'm a big proponent of the Archeo Twitter and like huge call out to April for organizing the, the tweet up, Twitter meetup. That was great. I met a bunch of people who I interact with online on a fairly regular basis in real life. I'm still not sure I could tell you their real names. I definitely know their Twitter handles. Um, that was the strange thing about it. I, mean, I just picked a day and time, and I figured, let's get everybody to meet each other at the beginning of the conference. That way you could network with them and meet their friends throughout the conference instead of waiting till later. And then it's just like, hello, goodbye, I'm, I'm going home. But it came out very clearly about halfway through we had what 20 something people there but I was the only one who knew everybody like mm-hmm. nobody showed up who I didn't already know in real life but then I was able to introduce everybody to each other but there was a moment where nobody was talking and everybody was just looking at me and I had to just stop and explain how I knew all of these people and then the conversation started up and you know it was great fun I didn't even get to talk to everybody that was there because I had relationships with them so I'm sure there were people who saw it on Twitter and still felt like they weren't welcome so I think there's a little bit of people need to take that leap, reach out, and and take advantage of opportunities when they come up. One of the frustrating things for me is that our lunch periods at this conference were only an hour, and there was no way to organize people to go to lunch unless you had already had something planned. And I wound up never going to lunch because I could never get back in time for the things that I wanted to if I had waited for people and went out um, for things. So we need a little bit bigger of a lunch break. And it would be great if the SHA just had like, okay, graduate student lunch, everybody meet over here and, and like different categories. And it doesn't have to be anything that they pay for or organize in any other way. Brown but just designated. Yeah. Yep. Well, they used to have a bulletin board mm-hmm. where you would put things up like that. Mm-hmm. But that in the past few years has kind of just disappeared. Yeah. I don't really know what happens to it. So maybe, you know, like the like Twitter or Facebook or something like maybe there's a way to create a, like a digital bulletin board to mm-hmm. say like, hey, let's meet up. Um, but I mean, I think the other thing that like us, the three of us as we've been around for a little bit kind of forget is sometimes you know it's on us to go up to someone who looks lost or who looks confused or who looks like you know standing just outside the circle mm-hmm. because I definitely remember feeling as like I, the first SHA I came to I was a, a senior undergrad didn't know anyone and you desperately want to meet these people that you admire and at that level you kind of forget that they're just people that they're not and not only are they just people but they're just as excited to talk about what they do as you are to hear it and so i had a few experiences with that with some undergrads from university of rhode island where i was a graduate student who were just like oh how do we meet people like how do we because none of our professors come to this Mm -hmm. conference and you know the it's on them to kind of figure it out and so that was also kind of like for me a different perspective i guess i've like switched over now um from being the desperate student to like kind of knowing a little bit more about what's going on but yeah and so after that you know what i did take them around and introduce them to people but it can be i think we forget that it can be really really intimidating Mm -hmm. and so to kind of like take it on ourselves to I I always do that at the AAAs in in November. It was the archaeology division 
had an award ceremony and a happy hour, and I never stay for the awards, but I went to the happy hour, and this woman had introduced herself to me, and then she wound up standing on the side, and I gathered a bunch of friends, and we're all going out to dinner, and I just said to her, do you want to come with us? And she was so happy. She sat next to me, and we talked the whole time. I still have no idea who this woman was, what her name was. I don't care. Like, I, she needed people to hang out with. She's an archaeologist let's hang out kind of thing. But at this conference, I've had a lot of people come up to me and say that someone, somebody said that they should meet me. And they say, I'm so glad to meet you. So-and-so said I should meet you. They don't tell me their name. And then they go, okay, goodbye. And I was like, <laughs> but like, so if you do want to go up to somebody and you do want to talk to them, you should have something to anchor that conversation a little bit. Tell me why so-and-so said we should meet. And then I could start figuring out and, and don't run away immediately. Like, I don't right. think I'm that intimidating, but I'm not about to chase people down and be like, no, come back. I want to talk to you. Right? So I think it, it goes both ways. Like, don't be so nervous that you make it awkward, but, you know, the other person has to also make it so that they shouldn't be nervous and they could be calmer. Yeah. I mean, and April, you are a remarkably socially adept human being. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm like constantly impressed, seriously, with like the people that you know and how you can like manage multiple conversations and bring people in. It's very skillfully done. Um, we'll have a workshop and, on that. <laughs> I mean, please, let me tell you, could benefit from it. Um, but it, but it can be difficult um, to figure that out. And I've like certainly invited people to think, oh, is that weird? Do you did you actually mean it? I'm like, yeah. I invited you. Yeah. I'm enjoying your company. I would like right. you to come meet my friends. I think you've got important things to say and this like pity or not. And I think that there's work that can be done on all sides. People mm -hmm. who are more established need to make a point of going and finding the person who's standing alone and mm -hmm. um, saying, hey, if you are wandering alone or wandering around looking for a group to join and you like can't seem to finagle your like social way into a group and you don't know someone, like there's probably somebody else in that room who's also standing around looking at their phone at their or phone at the conference like, program desperately trying to find something right, right trying trying to look busy because like, mm -hmm. they don't want to be the person who's alone who's mm -hmm. weird like go find that person mm -hmm. they're fascinating mm -hmm. and then there's two of you and then like someone else might walk up to you and be like oh hey here's a group two people and i can walk up to them and invite them into the conversation um so there's there's some need for people who are already established to invite um, undergraduates or people who are less certain into the area. There's also need the need for people to be more willing to put yourself out. Go say, hey, do you mind if I join this group? You can't wait for someone to come up to you and say, hi, my name is Chelsea. But I think that the, the SHA and organizations could do better. They could have the brown bag lunches. They could... Um, set up something where when you get the thank you for registering for SHA, we're setting up a Facebook, a private Facebook group for the event and just have someone to manage it and you go, here's the link to the group, you ask to join, there's someone who, you know, once a day goes on, checks, allows you to join, and then you've got a kind of digital bulletin board and not that everyone uses Facebook, but having a conference provide space <coughs> to have those sorts of interactions I think would be really beneficial and would help some of the people who are like where do I go how do I fit in how do I meet people like the organization has provided a space for you to make connections um, figure out if someone else needs to to share a hotel room because you don't want to burden the you know right bear the burden <laughs> of the entire cost the edge uh, SAAs has a student SAA Facebook group mm -hmm. that every year I'm applying. No one from my department's going. Are there, is there another person or three or four people who'd be willing to, to share a room? And you know what? Some of my best friends in anthropology are people who were coming to a conference in my city and needed somewhere to crash, or I was going there and needed somewhere to crash, or I, you know, met up with a group of three or four people and. <laughs> You know, there were two beds and it's a hotel room and you just get friendly and it's like not weird or anything. Um, but you have great conversations and because you live with them for three to five days, you get to know them really well and you see them at future conferences and they'll read your papers and give you comments. 
they're really, really productive relationships. Sometimes they'll invite you to be part of their projects. Um, you know, so don't don't overlook those opportunities. They may not be what you think of as like traditional networking opportunities, but they can be really useful. Well, and there's also something to be said for not just networking with people that you admire or would like to work with, but like people that are your age from other universities because you're all going to move up together and you're all going to be at the same level together. And so you're all starting out at the bottom. And then, you know, like right now, you like for me, you know, we're all getting real jobs and then, you know, but maybe like 20 or 30 years from now, like we will be the top people in our field. And it's nice to kind of like build that history. But, you know, it starts at the bottom with at the people I'm sharing a room with this year are people I met at the conference last year who this is the only time of year we see each other. We're SHA friends. Like that's just what we do. And we keep up with each other through the year and send each other drafts of papers and stuff. But this is how we met. This is why we're friends. So yeah, um, it's really great. So we are uh, actually just past the 20 minute mark. Um, so we're going to go to a quick, quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, maybe some of the things that we would have liked to have seen uh, be done better, shall we say, in, in some sessions. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. As mentioned, we are currently recording at the Society for Historical Archaeology 2018 meetings in New Orleans. In the last segment, we talked a little bit about what some of the highlights for the conference were. Um, I think we're going to transition. I know that there were a couple sessions that could have been better, shall we say, um, and things we would have liked to have seen. So we're going to shift our, our focus a little bit. Um, I'm looking at, at Jessica because I know she's like sitting over there like, I've got something to say. <laughs> no. For me, because this has happened to me before, like you get 15 minutes to give your paper. I don't care who you are, sorry, how important you think you are, how amazing your research is. When you have been talking for 30 to 40 minutes and your fit session was 15 minutes long, it's not just disrespectful to the other presenters, but it's just disrespectful to the audience members. It's disrespectful to the other researchers that couldn't be there because they're relying on you to contribute your fair amount. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm definitely like a session hopper where I don't necessarily look at like the session as a whole, but there's like different papers I want to see and sometimes a really interesting paper gets thrown into a session that kind of doesn't necessarily conjoin with the theme um, and so you're like yeah like this is really interesting but this one is specifically my research interest so I want to make a point to get up out of this session and leave to go to another session to watch one paper and come back and when the when presenters go over you know, you don't want to open the door and interrupt what's going on. You don't know what's the whole timeline kind of goes off. And so then you end up missing things that you want to contribute to or things that you wanted to see. And it's the most frustrating thing in the world. Personally, I had someone who spoke in a session that I presented in for 45 minutes and I was the second paper. And every one of my friends and colleagues who came to see my paper, which was on my thesis research, ended up having to get up and leave because you know, it's a two and a half hour session and this person just took up half of it and it's the last session of the day and we all know how SHA goes and at five o'clock it doesn't matter how many papers are left, like people are going to the bar. So it's so disrespectful and it just makes me so angry. Yeah, I mean, I, I would second that. There was a paper that I really wanted to attend that I showed up and it was really busy in the room. Um, you know, you could kind of peek in through the three-inch crack in the door and you can see there are already people standing there and that the topic is clearly not the paper that you're you're waiting for. And it turned out, uh, after listening for a minute or so, that the paper that was currently being given was the paper that was supposed to be from 
you know, like 8.45 to, to 9, that had started at 9, right? Um, and I wanted to, to listen to the 9.15 paper, so I, I already knew that there was like 15 minutes off there. And you don't know whether that's tech issues. It, it could very well be that there were technology problems. But this person started 15 minutes late through no fault of their own. And I stood outside of that door for 35 minutes until the next paper that I desperately wanted to go see was going to be starting in you know two, three minutes and I needed to, to run. Um, and I later found out that that person spoke for another five or seven minutes. So you're already 15 minutes behind and then you decide to take 40 minutes. Um, it's really disrespectful to the other people on the panel, to the people who are listening to you, to people who are trying to, to session hop. Um, and I think, and it's a really hard thing to do, and it's certainly not a, a skill that's very often taught. And I see a blog post in my future, um, but about what chairs or audience members can do in that situation, or even fellow presenters. I've, I've seen other presenters who, you know, I was supposed to start a minute ago, and they're still talking, and they will literally just go and awkwardly stand at the other presenter's mm-hmm. elbow. Until the person becomes uncomfortable enough to stop talking. I've seen session chairs say, you're done. I've also seen presenters being told verbally in front of a room of 30 people that they're done, ignore their chair and keep talking. I've seen audience members just like get up and and say, hey, no one's interested. I think that's the thing that I would take a little further from what you guys are saying is that once you've gone over your time, Nobody is listening to you anymore. They don't care what you have to say because you're disrespecting everybody. So when you keep talking, you're devaluing yourself and your research. There's nothing else that you should be saying because I have five more slides I want to get through. I'm going to quickly run through these maps. But a lot of people are taking too much time because they get up there and they say, before I'm going to start talking, this is my dissertation research that is an extension of my master's research that I started with when I went. And it's like, we don't need all of that context. And I was in a session that every paper was about the same site and every presenter got up and gave the address of the building and the whole history of the site before they got to their research. Like, be aware of, I have 15 minutes, what am I going to get across in my 15 minutes? And if you can't get it across in 15 minutes, then it's not a good paper. And one of the things that we could do is, you know, I've been doing this longer than you guys. If it's time for you to go in that room, go in the room. Don't look through the crack and stand outside because one of the cues for people to realize they've taken too much time is that people are getting up and leaving and other people are coming in. A lot of people are reading a script and they're not looking up. So the session chair is waving like your time is up and they're not seeing it issue that I have is that so for me personally when I give a talk like I don't read off a script Mm -hmm. but you know what I've practiced and I've Mm -hmm. timed myself but we're archaeologists and anthropologists like Mm -hmm. we all know that we are a socially awkward bunch (laughs) and not everyone can just jump up in front of 30 people and speak but one of my friends who has a ton of anxiety about public speaking he reads his paper and he times himself every single time because a lot of his work is like deep statistical analysis which is very valid, but he knows like there's it's data heavy, and if he just talks, he's going to talk for an hour, mm-hmm. and if he doesn't time himself, he is going to go over. So as a respect to everyone else, he times himself and gets his paper down to where he's you know he tries to do it where he's 16 minutes because he knows that he reads really fast when he's in front of people, right. so then it ends up being 15 minutes. But at the same time. I went to a different session about the highborn K shipwreck, which was all day long, like 8.30 to 5. And their session chair did a really good job. They did not have, after the first presentation that was an introduction to the site, everyone presented on something different at the same site, but they weren't like, this shipwreck sank on da 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 right, Like, right. yes, I get it. The last guy said the exact same thing mm-hmm. and the guy before that. And the whole last slide I have to get through this because I have to thank all the people that helped me right yeah. they did it in the very first session and the very last session and that was enough yeah. you know yeah. but that, that's just a chair who's done a good job organizing mm-hmm. if you have a session that presumably you've put together as a session not individual papers because you're all talking about the same site plan to have a 15 minute intro 
paper mm-hmm. and tell everyone that you're doing it and that they shouldn't, that they, they don't need to. Um, and actually, other, other than 16 minutes, I always say aim for 13 because you've got to walk to the podium, you've got to pull your slide up, there may be tech questions, something may come to you in the middle. If you're going to have a laser pointer that you haven't practiced with because not everyone has laser pointers, looking at your slide, identifying what you're going to be laser pointing at, it's always better to be a minute or two under than a minute or two over. But also know, know how long things take to read. One 12-point font, double-spaced page of paper, takes an average person two minutes to read. If you have 15 minutes, you have seven pages. I have talked to people here, oh, my paper's 12 pages. You're never going to get through mm-hmm. it. You need to cut that in half. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, it'll be fine. If you can read 12 pages in 15 minutes, no one can understand what you're saying. Saying, I have to read this really fast. Nobody could understand the 15, 20 minutes. You're going to read something really fast. We can't process information that quickly. One of the other things that I have discussed with some people at this conference is the whole measurements thing. Like, okay, we're we're all archaeologists. Like, if I am so interested in your research that I want the inches centimeter measurement mm-hmm. of the structure or the building or the units i will come up to you afterwards and right. ask you so if you want to just kind of breeze through that part mm-hmm. no one is going to hold it against you or right. if it's in your slide mm-hmm. you don't have to read your slides mm-hmm. like your slides are your visual representation mm-hmm. of the words that you're saying mm-hmm. so if you said like this is the area that we dug and the slide has the measurements you don't have to then repeat like we dug 13 cubic feet of dirt per day. Right. We started on March 22nd. Yeah. On March 23rd. Like, you can leave those details out because if anyone needs them, they'll come to you to get them. Yeah. I did go to a lot of papers that unfortunately really read like site reports. Mm-hmm. And, and it is important <laughs> for people to know that your site is out there, but I don't need to listen to you sit there for 15 minutes saying... I dug in California in 2002, and I was a student then, and right. my professor never published it, but this stuff exists, and we have X number of burials, and we found this feature. It's more like know. a resume or a diary, a diary right. journal, not I a... I call it uh, what I did over my summer vacation. Right. Yeah. Like, if I want that information, I will go find the gray literature. Or I will email you and ask me, you to send me your excavation notes. Why is this important? What does it mean? What does it tell us? One of my pet peeves is, and I'm sorry, you can't see what this slide is trying to show you because there's a thousand numbers and it's really tiny. Let me now explain to you the slide that you can't see, which is going to take five minutes. That's not part of their timed paper. Like, if you have to apologize for anything during your talk, just take it out. Right. Because it's a waste of time. And it just, again, makes you look like you're unprepared. And you can also assume that everyone who is here has at least taken Introduction to Archaeology. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to explain basic concepts. Mm-hmm. Like, don't waste your time doing that because we we know. Like, if you want to say, like, we did a survey and we dug 25 STPs, perfect. You don't need to say, I dug 25 shovel test pits. A shovel test pit is such and such and such and such. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're, you're at a professional conference. Like, trust and it, trust in your... Uh, peers' intelligence, so just a, a little bit more. Um, so that's my puppy. But no, that's valid. I would say I don't mind a little bit of here's what's on the slide. Um, I had an interesting conversation at the Triple A is actually about accessibility, mm-hmm. um, and you've put a, a slide up, and it's interesting and wonderful. Um, but if it's really important, if you say the photo on the slide is mm-hmm. and right. it, it takes five seconds yeah what i'm speaking more to is a graph yeah. that has numbers and columns and no things sense. and you 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 can't read it because it's so far away yeah. and then they spend so much time explaining it and it's not part of the paper so yeah. it's a separate thing to kind of prove that you had data you have to have a chart up like we trust that you have data right right Um, And even if you put a chart up and it's got, like, a lot of things that you don't understand and, like, sometimes I get it. It took you 29 hours to make whatever program you were using to make that chart or that map and you're stupid proud of it and Mm -hmm. you want people to see it. Yeah. 
I get that. But you say, here is this thing that I did based on, you know, the results we learned. Right? Because sometimes you make something pretty and you just want to share it with people. And you're super proud of it. Right? I've done the things where I'm like, oh, look at this map. This is a great map. This is a I want other people to see the map. But I'm not going to stand there and say, this little dot is this. And this little dot is, right. you know. Maybe you should make a handout. Uh, maybe you should make, yeah, you know. Well, just on a separate note, um, I also have a pet peeve of just like unrealistic expectations from panelists. So... I went to a panel that was aimed at, you know, helping students figure out how to navigate this as a career and just kind of, you know, taking the temperature of the room, Mm -hmm. taking the temperature of the political climate and the world. So we had people going on and on and on about how we're only preparing students for tenure track faculty positions and academic jobs. And it's kind of like what are you talking about? Like, where are all of these millions of elusive tenure track faculty positions that you're supposedly preparing students for? And so for me, it's a pet peeve to sit there and listen to people just talk about things that are so just unrealistic and never Mm going to happen, um, as opposed to being, having professional collaborations and like giving actual advice and like bestowing your knowledge, not your presumptions. So rant over. No, I mean, it's valid. Um, in 2016, there was a paper that came out last year that looked at data from 2016. There were 100 tenure track anthropology jobs that were advertised in 2016. There were 600 PhD anthropology graduates. That's one out of six. That's just shy of 17%. For that year alone, that's not to say for the hundreds and thousands of anthropology PhD graduates from previous years who have been adjuncting, who have been term professors, who may be looking to leave their university, who you are also competing against. The the odds are, are unrealistic. Well, and then I just don't understand that idea that you're trying to prepare people for CRM positions or you're trying to prepare people for, you know, positions outside of academia. But your perspective is that only the academics are worth worthwhile. And so also, you know, we've had a lot of discussions about your professor has had no, the only field experience that they had before they came to their university was what they did as an undergrad straight into a master's straight into a PhD. And now they're trying to explain to you section 106 when all of the work that they did was in Cyprus. And you're just like, okay, like that's fine. But like, there's just kind of this real world disconnect And I think that we all could do a better job to kind of get around that, but also that if you're going to organize a session that's supposed to be a panel, like, make it a panel. Like, this is all white men. Okay, well, you know, more than 50% of graduate students are women, so, like, where are the women representatives? Where are the minority representatives? And that's just, there was a few different sessions that were like that, where I was like, where are the other voices? Because... I've heard your voice. I've been hearing your voice for a while now. So, like, give me something new. Like, where are the other voices? And I don't know if it's because people don't know how to reach out to other people or if they don't want to, but it's just a, a pet peeve of mine. And I know it's not just SHA, so. I could uh, talk about the tenure track thing, but I think that'll take forever, uh, <laughs> being that I'm a tenured professor and I know like any year that I was applying for tenure track jobs, I could only find between eight and 14 jobs that fit me to apply for. So that's a, you know, instead of a number of a hundred, you're never going to be suitable for a hundred, but let's put a pin in that for another day or time. But going back to both taking the temperature of the room and having diversity on your, your panels, going back to the uh, structural racism forum, a lot of what people were saying in there is how do we attract new people of diverse backgrounds to historical archaeology and how do we attract diverse audiences 
to historical archaeology as far as doing community outreach and stuff. And I raised my hand twice and nobody ever called on me, but, you know, that's fine. Um, but what we never did was we never acknowledged the huge amount of diversity that was in the room. And we never talked about, hey, all of you people who are in this room who care about structural racism and you all have very diverse backgrounds, how do we retain you? How do we make you guys become CRM managers, CRM company owners, tenured professors? We will have a more diverse historical archaeology if we keep all of those people and make them feel valued and then they go on and be role models, they be anchors, they be mentors. So I think sometimes we, we think too far outside of ourselves and nobody on the panel was sitting there and taking the temperature of the room that everybody kept saying, well on my project I do this, which isn't relevant to everybody else in the room. Like, let's yeah. talk about the people in the room, but not be like, raise your hand and ask the entire room to help you solve your personal problems. Find the commonality. What, in that career forum, what was the careers the people who showed up wanted to go towards? Did they want to go to academia? Did they want to go to CRM? Start your panel with that and not your prepared comments of who you think is going to show up. Right. Yeah, I actually saw a a tweet from, uh, unfortunately, I can't remember who tweeted it out, but it was a quote from one of the papers that she went to, um, and it was paraphrasing here, it doesn't matter how many defer diverse participants you attract if you do not deal with the structural racism that exists within archaeology and, you know, cultural heritage management on a broader scale they will not stay mm -hmm. um and and that's on us mm -hmm. um and, and on that we're at the end of our second segment um we may take this conversation a little bit into the the next 20 minutes and we'll be back after the break Hey, podcast fans, if you want to check out some great designs, and we're going to be adding more as you probably hear this, depending on when you're hearing it, but uh, we've got a new association, and I say new as of January 2018, uh, with T Public. and T Public is a pretty great outlet for designers, uh, which we've got our own designs for the Archaeology Podcast Network, um, to get a pretty good return. Uh, a lot of places, they give you just like a dollar or two on a $20 t-shirt purchase, but um, T Public actually gives us a lot more than that, and it's a really great deal for us, and it's a good deal for them, and it's a good deal for you because we can have stuff in stock all the time. Um, check out our site. Go to arcpodnet.com forward slash shop, and you'll see a link to the T Public store where you can get t-shirts, uh, sweatshirts, you know, smartphone cases, laptop cases, pillows, even tote bags, all kinds of stuff over at that site. So check it out at arcpodnet.com forward slash shop. Now back to the show. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we have been recording from the Society for Historical Archaeology 2018 meeting in New Orleans. In the last 20 minutes, we talked a little bit about some of the things that we would have liked to have seen done better at the conference. In the break, we, we talked a little bit about things that we would like to say that didn't necessarily fit into either of the previous two sections, so we're going to um, just talk about those things. I would actually like to start going back to talking about people getting up and leaving conferences or um, walking into doors for 15 minutes for one session. I saw a lot of people coming into a session and there may have been five or ten chairs at the front of the room and people wanted to sit at the back of the room because they wanted to be able to duck out if need be um, but people would come in and they wouldn't go sit in those seats and I don't know whether it's a fear of um, disturbing the, the presenter or not being able to get out but when I look at the back of the room um, and one of the rooms I was in had a room capacity of 34 people and I was a session monitor and at one time there was 67 people in the room, which is almost double the room capacity. And granted, I'm pretty sure there were more than 34 chairs in that room, but about half of them were stood kind of down the aisleways and right in front of the door. And there were a couple of seats left. Go find the seats. You're not going to distract the presenter that bad. They are so engaged in their own paper and hopefully trying to hit their 15 minute mark. And what they're saying, they're probably not going to notice that you walk down the aisle. 
if there is a session like that going on and it's something you really want to go to and you open the door and notice that, don't go in. I know that like it really sucks to not be able to go to the sessions that you want to attend, but that's a serious fire hazard. If something happened to get those people out, um, April, you told a, <laughs> a story of someone who had done a, a similarly egregious thing. Yeah, the, the room that uh, my paper was in on Thursday afternoon was so cold, people were tweeting that it was the meat locker. <laughs> freezing in there. So uh, the chair of the session and I were standing outside the room waiting for the previous session to finish, and we weren't going to step in that room one minute before the previous session was finished because it was just so cold, but it was already, that session was running over. And there was a young woman, presumably an archeologist, she had a badge, who was outside the room in the hallway, sitting there in the floor, leaning against the door of a session that was already late coming out. So she was basically locking everybody in. So just being aware of your surroundings in general and that keeping your face in the program looking for things to go to at all times is not necessarily the best way to spend your time. Yeah. When I actually go, go to things you wouldn't. Um, I was a session attendant for two sessions, one of which I may have attended anyways. It was about um, contact and colonialism and, and was very interesting and was something that I kind of starred as something I might be interested in when I had first looked over the um, uh, program that they put out. The other one was a session on transferware ceramics. I'm a bioarchaeologist, mm-hmm. and I got to archaeology through forensic anthropology. Mm-hmm. So I took I took the standard archaeology class, like, here's a potsherd, and you can put them back together, and you can identify them. and. It is not my area of expertise, or like dare I say it, even necessarily an area of interest. I think it's useful. I think it's important. I would very much like it if someone else would do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's not to say I won't, but I would. But it was great, and I learned a lot. There was a methodological paper where they were talking about resources that were available if you do this kind of work. So if I ever am in a situation where I have to, I now feel like I have at least an idea of a starting point um, of where I would go to look to try and figure this out. Um, there were some really interesting papers that looked at the importance of choice of patterns and transferware for creating identity or for escaping um, kind of the life that you lived and buying this really exotic pattern um, and that it's not all just about economic means that there's also choice and identity in there. And I really enjoyed that session. And if I hadn't been the session attendant, I would never have attended it. (laughs) Um, So if if you don't know what to do, or if sessions are starting and you haven't figured out, like go open a door to a random room and sit down and learn something. Preferably one that is warm, not cold. Yes, (laughs) one that that isn't already over capacity. Right, right. And I will give you that too. Like I think that one of the things that I was in a room that was like overly warm and you know like I've been wearing my jacket around all the time because it's so cold and then like just absolutely sweating because it's so warm in the room but it always blows my mind that there's these papers where you look at the title of them you can clearly see this paper is going to be popular and then they stick it in a room with 20 chairs Mm -hmm. you know and like why isn't this in one of the bigger rooms and then you go in the big rooms and there's 10 people in there Mm -hmm. and I'm just like Mm -hmm. Who who planned this? Who organized this? And that's one of those things where like, maybe I need to join a committee mm-hmm. and like right. solve this problem. Yeah. When they have session attendants, <coughs> their job part of their job is to requ- is to report how many people are in the room. I don't know how long they've been collecting this data, but at some point you've collected data from a bunch of years. Like why haven't you analyzed it and used it to figure out what type of topics people are interested in? And granted, the conference attendance will vary from year to year. I get it, um, but yeah, sometimes. Well, they tend to put sessions of the same topic back to back mm-hmm. or against each other. So one will draw people away from the other so that if you have the data today on how many people go to a historical archaeology talk on 
historical archaeology of Native American reservations, it's not necessarily going to be the same if that conference is in New Orleans versus Denver. And it's not going to be the same if there is a session that is about decolonial archaeology during the same time as the session on Native American reservation archaeology, which isn't a big thing. So is it going to be a lot of people because it's new? This afternoon, there were two sessions at the same time on schoolhouse archaeology. And I started doing schoolhouse archaeology 20 years ago. Nobody was doing it at all. Elizabeth Pena was the first person to do schoolhouse archaeology in like 1994. And now there's competing sessions. So how do you figure out the trends? I think it's it's more elaborate. And the explanation people have given to me is, why those sessions that are similar wind up at the same time is because the software programs that they use set it up so that no person needed to be in two places at once. So it's all mutually exclusive so that it actually tends to create these clusters Mm -hmm. because if you're giving two different papers in two different sessions, they have to be at different days and times. But yeah, so it is an elaborate process, but I think it's great to get on one of the committees and see what you could contribute, especially if you're newer and therefore know the trends now. Well, it's also something I was talking about with, I'm on the UNESCO committee, which is their goal is to um, help facilitate the ratification of the 2001 UNESCO convention. And um, the committee chairs on a few other committees. And she was saying that like, there is one person under 50 in every single committee. Like, mm-hmm. where are all of the younger people? Like, why wh- why, why were people intimidated to become part of these committees? And so, I mean, it's not actually a huge commitment to be on a committee. Um, but I do know it's intimidating to walk into a room and to make a year-long commitment to help with something or to do something. Um, but it's one of those things that just not good or bad, but... If you feel like you're here and you want to get more involved, all you have to do is email the committee chair and you are on the committee. Like there is no entrance exam. <laughs> you're not in po- like you're not an imposter. Like if you want to participate in a committee, even if that committee has nothing to do with any experience you've had, like you will be welcomed with open arms. But and that's so. not true for all organizations. Like the SAA has an application system yeah. and I've had really bad experiences with the Society for American Archaeology committees, and I'm intentionally not on them at all, and the American Anthropological Association, it's all by election, Mm -hmm. and then the chair gets to pick who's on it, so it turns into kind of, me and my friends are on the committee, and things like that, so if that's how the SHA is doing, I've never been on an SHA committee, then that's great, but that's not how all the organizations are. There's just not yeah. as many as us, and uh, we're just not that. We're not that cool, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, but in addition to, there's, you know, if you want to represent, it's great, and grand organizations do, do things differently. If you, it's a great way to network. If you want to get to know people in your area, like the people on the committees are the people who care. So join a committee in an area you're interested in and get to know the other people who are interested in that area. And the other thing is, if you're someone who uh, goes places and likes to have a role, um, you know, to have feel like you have a job, so there's less of the like awkwardly like, I'm standing around waiting for someone to come be friends with me. More of like, a, yes, I'm here by myself, but I'm the session attendant or I'm volunteering or I'm like the committee member who's paying attention. It like does change your, change, change your body language and it can make you more comfortable. And it can also give you something that if you're at the conference, that's something to, to talk about. And you can say, I'm on the committee and I'm interested in your uh, impression of how the conference went. What did we do well? What could we do better? I'm in a position to make changes. And even if that position is just, I happen to know someone that I can email directly rather than drop into an anonymous comment box, um, you can help the organization. You can also help yourself a lot. Well, another way to help yourself, just to like take us off in another direction, sure. um, is like business cards. <laughs> this is I. So I will say I ran out on the first day, which is like is on me. However, if you want something from someone, like don't give them your business card and expect them to email you. You need to ask for their business card and then follow up with them. Um, 
it's just, I mean, I totally understand that people get excited and they need things, but if you're like, wow, your paper was so great, like, I'm really interested in your research, here's my card, please email me a copy, you know, maybe that person had like 20 other people do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so then you have this stack of business cards and you're like, oh my gosh, like, I don't remember who wanted what or whatever. But if I want, you know, Chelsea's paper, and I say, Chelsea, can I please have your card? I want a copy of your paper. I'll follow up with you in a couple of weeks when things have wind down so that we can really talk about it. That interaction will actually happen. Like that interaction has follow through. Um, but also like just throwing business cards at someone and being like, help me, help me, help me yeah. is not is not the way to network. So I actually carry a pen around because I have I have business cards. I've unfortunately been in this situation before where I've really wanted to connect with someone and I'm like, do you have a business card? And they're like, no. And I'm like, oh, like, can I get your email? And they're like, well, my university one just closed and like, I'm not giving my, you know, private one. And, and so then you're, I have another situation where I'm like, here's my business card. <laughs> that you've literally provided me no way of contacting you. But if you have a pen and you can flip the business card over and write wants your AAA presentation mm-hmm. on the back of it, then if you have 20 or 30 business cards, at least when they get to yours, they're like, here's like an actionable thing. I'm not saying that that always works or that that person always. But you could do that out. when they give you theirs too. You Assuming could flip it over one. and say, this person wanted this. Right. And then when you get home and you have your stack of 20 business cards, you could go through them. And I try to do it like the, on the flight back home. I try to go through all the paperwork and make a list of what I said that I was going to do. Like several of my colleagues that I, you know, we're friendly, but we don't see each other often have asked for copies of my books. And I'm, I made a list at lunch. I sat there and I was like, okay, I'm sending this person this, I'm sending that person and that so you don't want to be the person who said you were going to do something and then forget yeah. so everything you said you were going to do write it down because you forget everybody you've talked to you see them day after day and you don't remember who wanted what and how you were going to help each other and you're not going to grow your network if you're unreliable yeah definitely um another kind of conference etiquette uh you know personal impression thing that i I've seen a lot of at archaeological conferences is attire. And and I get it. We're archaeologists. We work in the field, in the mud, and the dirt. Sometimes you don't get to shower for a couple weeks depending on where you're working. I get it. This is not the field. And if you want to run around in jeans and a t-shirt for the entirety of, of the conference, that's fine. You are presenting yourself in a certain light. It may not be perceived in a positive way way by some many or all people but you know for the love of whatever you believe in if you are giving a presentation and you walk up to the podium in socks and tivos that look like they're 20 years old and a pair of jeans that have you know 20 stains of unidentifiable you know substances that I don't even want to guess at and a shirt that's got a bunch of holes in it, and your field you backpack. haven't your field backpack. <laughs> you like haven't brushed your hair, um, you know, or you've got if you're a guy, you've got like the super scruffy. I don't have a beard. I don't have not have a beard. I just kind of look like I haven't shaved in a couple of days. The only thing that people are going to remember you for is the guy who couldn't be bothered, or the girl who couldn't be bothered to respect the people in the room that he's talking to enough to look presentable. No, it's definitely true. And also just, you know, I get it. Like, I mean, today is the last day of the conference. I'm in jeans today. But, you know, like, I took a shower this morning. I put on a clean shirt. Because, like, SHA is not necessarily as, I feel like, as formal as other conferences are. I think we're, of the big national conferences, like, we're on the more casual side. So I get it. Like, you're going to drink. You're going to go to the bar. We're in New Orleans also, so that's, like, a whole other problem. <laughs> but, um, you know, like, if I saw you last night at the bar and you're still there this morning, before you come up to my session, please, like, drink some water, be respectful, slap on some deodorant maybe, wash your face. Like, people, you might not think people remember, but people will remember. And if when it comes time, when it comes down to it, and you're trying to get a job and someone remembers that, like, you were the person who was standing on the bar, like, you know, hooting and hollering, like, that might be the deciding factor. 
And so, like, we're still in a professional setting despite being in New Orleans and SHA being, like, a slightly more casual conference than other conferences. And for those of you who can't see, she's actually very well-dressed. This isn't, like, bad, ratty jeans. I had to check to see that she actually is wearing jeans because I did not recall that, but, yeah. Well, I did bring a dress for today, but it's so cold that I just... It's yeah. like, I, I can't, yeah, my legs can't cold. take it. <laughs> I've worn jeans every day of this conference. They yeah. are dark jeans. They're nicer. I did have a beignet this morning. I got powdered sugar all over <laughs> them, so they're not so nice now. Even though we had Twitter conversations about <laughs> avoiding powdered sugar on your, your conference clothes. Oh, no, no, no. Em- embrace the chaos. And embrace the chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and as we've been talking, somebody just emailed me and asked me to join an SAA committee. That seemed like... We just brought that forward <laughs> here. So, yeah, the world works in mysterious ways. But before we end, Chelsea, tell us about your paper at the conference. Uh, <laughs> um, so it wasn't actually a paper I, I presented. It was a paper I co-authored with three other individuals. Um, there's a project going down on in Bogota, Colombia. It's actually finished now um, at the San Ignacio Jesuit Church. Um, it's actually one of the largest, if not the largest, restoration of a colonial era building from in, in all of Colombia. The building was built in 1610 and has had a somewhat checkered past, as many buildings do. Um, but they undertook 13 years of renovation, structural re- renovation, to make sure that the building was sound. And then they decided that they wanted to do... Um, some, you know, more decorative work, one of which was bringing the floor down to the original level. And when they started digging through 400 years of floor and four different floors in 400 years, they unsurprisingly found bodies. Um, so I was, I went down after the excavation where excavations were complete and worked with the, the human remains in a lab setting. But it was, it was an overview paper of where the church was, what we did, why it was important for um, Colombian heritage, the the importance of memory and remembering and commemorating the dead. Colombia has had one of the longest running civil wars in modern history um, for you know fifty or so years, and as a result, there's been a lot of death, and they don't necessarily want to to commemorate that but the importance that these sites can have as places to remember history um, and everything that's that's going on. Um, we're still doing the, the analysis, so expect more conference papers and journal articles. And we were in a session that was on the importance of burial locations and cemeteries in commemoration in memory and negotiating current political issues. There were a couple papers on, or at least one paper on um, Confederate monuments. There was a paper on World War I monuments. There was a paper on a cemetery in Florida. Um, and just the point that cemeteries in places where the dead reside are a very tangible thing that connects people to their history and the heritage that they have. Um, and shared history and heritage and I mean if you spend a lot of time in cemeteries around dead people it reminds you that everybody kind of ends up in the same place Um, (laughs) might help to take some people down a beg or two (laughs) (laughs) not going to get too political there Um, are we all doomed is that what you're saying (laughs) Yeah, you can't take it with you that's that's the lesson here (laughs) yeah yeah, pretty much um, I'm not sure what I have to take with me anyway. <laughs> my, my extensive faunal collection. I want to be buried with the 175 animal skeletons that I have in my lab. Right. And, uh, make sure they stay in their taxonomically organized boxes because that would be cooler than King Tut's tomb, right? right yeah. Find yeah. me and all my categorized um, The ritual skeletons. interpretation of that burial. Yeah, right? probably all wrong. But, um... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, when people die, they commemorate their family, you know, loving wife, husband, father, daughter, you know, whatever it is. Um, those are the things that I guess are, are important. Um, I'm going to admit a little plug for an episode that's going to be 
um, a little bit after this episode, we're having someone from Kiribati come on to talk about archaeology and climate change, um, who I had the pleasure of being on a panel with at a conference last year. And the phrase that he ended his presentation on, which apparently is a very common phrase in Kiribati, is family is everything and everyone is family. And I think cemeteries can help people recognize the importance of family and recognize that we all end up in the same place so we are all more closely interconnected than we may otherwise think um but we are at the end of our, our podcast so if anyone has any final thoughts come to sha it's really fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i'm going to skip the next two so uh but i'll, I'll be at saas in uh, in a couple of weeks back in uh washington dc yeah. Uh, where we just were for the triple A's. So, yeah, more conferences to come. Yeah. Um, so, again, thank you, as always, for coming and being on the show. And I hope you – I certainly enjoyed the conference. I hope you did, too. It was nice to lows. finally meet you in person. Yeah. <laughs> wow, you guys haven't met before. That's cool. No. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely very exciting. Um, they definitely act like they've known each other for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you spend hours talking with people over, over Skype, you know. Uh, but, yeah, just thank you so much for, for being here. Um, as always – Expect a new episode two weeks after this one. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. We always love to hear from our listeners. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Links to the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes. You can contact us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com or at womenarchies on Twitter. Please like, share, and subscribe to the show. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Support the show in the APN at www.archpodnet.com members. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.